The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimizing your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Damien Christoph to explore the microbiome beyond the food that you eat. We explore the intricate link between digestion and the nervous system, the significance of sympathetic dominance, and the impact that our modern day lifestyle may have on our microbiome. We then discuss fast transit time and loose bowels, microbiome testing, what you can do to create balance between the brain and the gut, and so much more. Hi, Damo, and welcome back. Uh, hey, Steph, how are you? Yeah, I'm really well. 2020, it's good to have you back on the show for The Real Food Real this year. I've missed it. I've missed it. It feels like forever since I've been on, but it's great to be back. And thanks for having me back on. It's um, it's always a great pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, for sure. So today is a really important conversation. And, you know, whilst we've had similar conversations in the past, I think it's something that really needs to be covered because in my space, I feel like the relationship between digestion and the nervous system is often forgotten about. So I wanted just to start there and let's talk about, yeah, that, that connection and, and what, what that means when we talk about the digest, um, digestion in relation to the nervous system. Yeah. Oh, it's such a, it's a fascinating area, Steph, where, you know, that we're all trying to learn more and understand better and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's unbelievable how fast it all changes too. And so just bit by bit, you know, you and I were just chatting off air about some of the things that, you know, starting to come through about our understanding, but it's still so limited. You know, what we think we know right now 
will be such a small amount in 10 years' time. So let's put this into context. If you listen to this in the year 2030, you're probably going to laugh at what we're talking about. I know. But, Isn't that so funny to think that, though? Like to think back that we will <laughs> listen to this in 10 years' time and cringe. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe we're saying it. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty funny. I'll be sitting in my rocking chair. And, uh, you'll be, <laughs> you will not. You'll, you'll be, be nursing your God. fourth baby. Oh, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be fascinated. We'll listen back to those tips. I'll probably, you're right, I'll be playing golf. That's You'll exactly be playing golf full time for no sure. No doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steph, um, it's interesting because the gut and the brain are formed at around the same time in the development of the neural crest or the spinal cord um, post conception. So, like when we're talking the first 21 days post conception, we're talking about two cells coming together, uh, forming. Um, a unit, that unit then splits up into multiple different cells, which then form what's called the neural crest, which then becomes the spinal cord. Off one end of the spinal cord um, forms the brain. At the other end of the spinal cord forms the digestive system. And then all of the other organs in the periphery all start to fall off that as well. And so it all joins together from two cells that were originally um, you know, just created by a sperm and egg coming together. So it's unbelievable. It's but unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. It's, yeah. it's so unbelievable. And so, you know, who would have thought that 30 seconds in your life could create such an incredible thing happening? So it's, <laughs> for me, I think it's like incredible that we get brain and gut. At the same time. On the same, yeah. same time, same cells with the same chemicals that in, influence it. So we're talking neurotransmitters. We're talking norepinephrine epinephrine, um, serotonin, melatonin, all of these hormones affect both of these ends of the spectrum of the spinal cord, uh, which is essentially then the brain and the gut. So, you know, that's, that's really important. And then um, our thoughts and our environment and our knowledge and the things that we learn, the things that we hear, the things that we see, the things that we touch, everything that runs up to the brain then determines how the brain responds to our environment. At one end, and then at the other end, um, our microbiome, our bacteria, the food we put into our body, um, the water we drink, or the beverages we consume, um, the chemicals that come through our liver, into our gallbladder, into our bile—all of that then influences the way in which our brain at the other end works, which is our gut. And so, our internal environment then uh, shares information back up to the brain, so that the brain can then share information back down to the gut to tell it how to. Um, interact with its environment so we've got an internal environment and an external environment both based on perceptions um, but both communicating with each other and that's that intrinsic nature of the, of the communication which is just mind-blowing yeah it's a really i mean it is so it's so fascinating to win, really break that down and think about also how obvious it is when really we've only been talking about the gut being the second brain for the last handful of years like when did that become vogue? Maybe sort of five years ago. I mean, of course, people have been researching for a long, long time, but in terms of it becoming like more of a general household conversation, it's very, very recent. Yet it's like we've forgotten about it when we know what evolution looks like and, yeah, what's happening in those 21 days. Like it's hard to imagine that we've missed that connection for so long. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is too that because uh, modern science has kind of taken us down the path of a mechanical approach to understanding health or a, medica- a mechanical approach or a, um, a parts model of the human body, 
body as opposed to the whole model of the human body. Um, we, we would consider the gut and the brain and digestion and lungs and heart and skin and reproductive organs are all independently functioning. They have their own role to play. But since, I suppose, the understanding that um, stem cells are involved and the human genome has been mapped and all of these sorts of things that we get a greater understanding about, there's very clear evidence that everything's interrelated and interconnected. And there's nothing more interrelated and more interconnected than the gut and the brain. It's just that medicine, and I'll be very broad sweeping in this brushstroke, medicine by and large hasn't yet grasped the concept that the gut and the brain are connected. And that's why we still see gastroenterologists practicing independently of neurologists. Yeah. Because they should be working together. They really should be working side by side with a nutritionist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And a chiropractor. And a chiropractor. Exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. That'd be cool. What's, mm. oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Then we're talking mm. integrated health. That's, yep. uh, that'd be total integration. Um, and right. no reason why we wouldn't have a physio either or an osteo working in that cool. sort of space too because yeah. all of all of the work that we all do is complementary. It's not competitive. And I think that's also really important to understand. We work together to achieve awesome health outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty huge, but you're right. We've looked at the body quite separate in terms of systems for so long and unfortunately to our detriment in many areas, especially when we look at, you know, people who have had either chronic digestive issues or it might have been sort of chronic mental health issues or the conditions that were looked at in isolation rather than having that integrative approach. So let's stay with, with the gut um, mm-hmm. and let's just break down the nervous system a little bit more into its, its parts, if you would. Yeah, sure. So quite often we talk about the nervous system as being autonomic or somatic. Mm-hmm. So somatic being the nervous system that we feel, that we, uh, that we can control in terms of our movement, um, our sensation and interpretation of temperature, touch, pain, all of those sorts of things. And that forms around about 20% of our total nervous system activity in terms of what's happening in our brain. So not lots of activity, but certainly relevant. 20% of our nervous system energy is channeled in the direction of things that we can control. Now, that leaves 80% of the nervous system left to manage the functions uh, and the actions of the whole of the body that are involuntary. So, for example, breathing, um, nutrient utilization, digestion, heartbeat, uh, kidney function, liver function, splenic function, um, immune system, uh, endocrine system, all of these things that are all governed by the brain and the nervous system. And that's called the autonomic nervous system. That's 80%, around about 80% of the nervous system's function is autonomic or automatic. We don't have any control over it. It just does what it does. So we've got to make sure that that's well protected, that's well looked after. And then the subsets of that are the um, um, the sympathetic nervous system. So I had a bit of a mind blank there. <laughs> the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So we hear about that being thrown around at the moment because there's great evidence around the sympathetic nervous system. And if that's overcharged, then we can have you know we can experience the concept known as burnout, um, or we can experience stress, or we can experience anxiety, and then the the chronic component of an overcharged sympathetic nervous system might be um, anxiety, insomnia, or depression. So we've got all of those sorts of things. And the thing that balances out the sympathetic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the component or the comp- or the part of the autonomic nervous system that allows us to rest, 
digest and repair versus the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight, flight, freeze, flee. So, you know, they're, they're different in their actions and they have a role to play in the way in which we would digest. Um, and, and it's a different role and, and both very, very important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's really good to understand. Yeah, I didn't actually, I hadn't recalled the stats around it being 80% like autonomic, which is pretty incredible because, yeah, all these things just happen without us having to control them or give it a single thought. Um, and so then when we talk about the sympathetic nervous system and for a lot of people, yeah, that is quite a common term that we're using and we're understanding that a lot of us live there, unfortunately, in this day and age yeah. where far too dominant at least in that sympathetic part or, or way of living really. Um, so what, what does that do? How does that impact our digestion? And what are we seeing so commonly now that we know so many people are living their life very sympathetically? Mm. Well, you think about how a lot of people start the day too, Steph, and people start the day by wanting to supercharge their sympathetic nervous system. So even to the extent that people might use caffeine to break their fast instead of food to break their fast could push people into a further sympathetic state. So where they have caffeine to get themselves going, mm-hmm. yes, let's say, for example, having caffeine with some fat. So maybe it's having a bulletproof coffee, just you know, as an example. Let's say having caffeine with fat, they're going to get a fat, you know, drop into their digestive system, which would give them sustained energy over a long period of time. But they're also getting something that supercharges the release of adrenaline by, from the caffeine. So the caffeine response um, in the body is to have an adrenal response. It's a sympathetic nervous system kicker. So your immediate recall is, is good. You feel alive and awake. Your heart rate increases. Your temperature increases. Um, your blood vessels are constricted. Um, and you're more focused, your concentration is sharp, your bowels will open because your sympathetic nervous system empties your bowels, it opens up um, the transit time, so it increases transit time, will speed through the gut. And so just from a simple start in the day, if you're starting with caffeine, you can actually overcharge or overstimulate your sympathetic nervous system. And for some people who are already struggling to get to sleep at night or struggling with heartburn or indigestion or struggling with bloating or struggling with irritable bowel, with diarrhea, for example, doing that to start the day could in fact be making things worse. So people who are stressed, who aren't able to switch into a parasympathetic mode of their nervous system very easily, uh, will find that they... Uh, have these sorts of symptoms that might signal to them that they're in a sympathetic state. Yeah, I certainly can't drink coffee anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I, drink, I drink a decaf and, and a, a coffee on occasion. But um, for me personally, and like maybe this will help others, which is why I share, is like it, it's really about acknowledging what is adding to that sympathetic dominance. Like I've been in that sort of mum mode, fight, flight or free kind of on edge. Oof. For the last 11 months so I've really noticed that I just can't add anything else to that equation so you know balancing out the parasympathetic with lots of yoga is great but I just can't drink coffee and and I don't have sugar and anything like that so yeah I think it is about of course we're going to be more sympathetic dominant for for certain reasons and evolutionary it's a protective mechanism But, yeah, it's the the imbalance that causes the issue. And, yeah, caffeine is something that needs to be addressed for some people, for a lot of people, actually, because it's an addiction. Yeah, well, you and I know people that are, you know, definitely 
uh, high consumers of caffeine. Um, <laughs> don't we? About? Oh, it's just some person that we know. <laughs> and <laughs> not want to throw anyone under the bus. I, I um, mm. But there's other things that we see that uh, also stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, and this is where food allergies kind of come mm-hmm. into it. And so we might see that people are sensitive to different types of foods, and, and I know that you would see that more than what I do, Steph, in your line of work being a nutritionist. You will see more food sensitivities and allergies than I will as a chiropractor. So, um, you know, we know that when you have an allergic response or a sensitive response, it's generally governed by an immune response or an immune reaction uh, caused by mast cells degranulating in response to proteins or carbohydrates presented across the cell membrane. So, or, sorry, across the gut membrane. So, in in that regard, people can have a massive evacuation um, yeah. to move things out. People can have um, bloating as a result. People can have um, moodiness or sadness as a result. Some people actually have anaphylaxis as a result because that's a, a you know a very serious acute response to a food allergen um, but that's triggered or that's that's the microbiome or, or the yeah it is it's the microbiome communicating with the white blood cells which is the immune system communicating with the nervous system um you know to the brain so this is a, a clear indication here of how the microbiome is communicating with the immune system which communicates with the uh, nervous system and so food sensitivities uh you know really do drive um, a lot of our sympathetic responses as well. Yeah, totally. That complete evacuation is so obvious. Like I think um, it's one of those examples where our, our body speaks loud and clear. Like I think we, if we truly sat down and had a look, you would really identify, it'd be quite easy to understand what you were reacting poorly to. Definitely yeah. digestive symptoms. They're more obvious when it is food related. Like that is an easy connection to make. But for other, you know, other examples, like you said, with mood or whether it's your skin, I, my experience is people find it harder to connect the dots because we're so used to a symptom being like obvious gut related, like bloating or running to the loo. But because the gut has that systemic impact and communicates to the whole body, yeah, if your skin's breaking out or if you're feeling really flat or emotional after food, like doing that sort of food symptom diary can be really important because yeah, like you've got to get rid of the trigger food at least initially to solve the problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then there's ways in which you can manage that. And, you know, I suppose there's technologies these days, Steph, that both you and I are using um, that help us understand whether or not the microbiome uh, is involved in this and or maybe there's a deficiency in gastrointestinal function or maybe there's a uh, an insufficiency in gastrointestinal secretions or whatever else. Well, there's technology that we can actually use now to measure uh, function and dysfunction uh, within the gastrointestinal system, which is really exciting. But even still, I still think it's somewhat limited and we've got a bit of a way to go in its proper understanding of how that actually rolls out. Yeah, I think that you're right. Like there's so much amazing technology, but we're really just looking at the tip of the iceberg at the moment. Like we know if we talk back around sort of sympathetic dominance and stress, like what we do know is it's been shown like stress changes the microbiome um, definitely looks at like it impacts neurotransmitter production and can cause more inflammatory cytokines. But what we don't really know, I think, is that next step, like how detrimental that is because we still see there are plenty of people who are quite 
stressed. They might have a lot of obvious gut issues, but like we was talking about off air, their gut test looks pretty good. So we, we're still really trying to connect the dots and understand that full picture, I think, at this point in time. Oh, absolutely. And there's a great book written by Wayne and Angela Todd called The SD Protocol, Steph. And mm, I've read I'm it. pretty sure you've seen this book, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've read it. I know, uh, so, I know Wayne quite well. Oh, there. Well, see, Wayne's a legend. So, <laughs> yeah, how good is he? He's such a legend. So if we look at um, the SD protocol or the sympathetic dominant protocol, uh, th- there's when, and you look at the different people that sit in the car, the symptoms that the different people that sit in the car experience in Wayne's uh, book uh, talk about gastrointestinal function. Some might be constipated, some might have diarrhea, some have bloating and all this sort of stuff. And um, and largely it comes back to the body's ability to switch from sympathetic nervous system into parasympathetic nervous system. And so maybe we can share some clues as to so that people can see whether or not they're in sympathetic state or parasympathetic state. But where I, where I suppose uh, I wanted to, to go with that is that when there's a sympathetic um, response to the body or, you know, by the body, uh, our digestion takes a lower priority. So when we're in a sympathetic state, um, it takes a lower priority. And so one of the things that we do as chiropractors is manage the sympathetic nervous system through the adjustment of the spine. So part of Wayne's protocol is to look at the position of the of the ribs uh, in the body and we assess that. We look at the upper cervical spine as well as the upper thoracic spine to consider whether or not that might be overstimulating or contribute to an overstimulation of the sympathetic system in which case we then take appropriate action to assist the body to wind down that synthetic response and so chiropractic in this regard then um, helps to manage that nervous system response there's a lot of great science that wayne and angela quote and reference to back up the effectiveness of their protocol yeah absolutely and i know a lot of people that have used it with great success because it's very holistic it's obviously chiropractic um he speaks about nutritional deficiencies um red blue light like versus red light like it's it's again looking at those things that yeah really causing us to be in that dominant state that sympathetic state where you said like yeah your body's essentially running away from a threat or what it perceives to be a threat adequate digestion is just a low priority at that point in time so Whilst we may see that evacuation with the example that you mentioned around caffeine and um, certainly food intolerances, what else happens with, say, um, symptoms, whether it's our more physical symptoms like bloating or our bowels around that sympathetic dominance? Well, there's, yeah, that's a great question, Steph. So what some people might notice is that they get heartburn. So they might actually have accelerated um, gastric acid secretion or increased gastric acid secretion. Um, And so that could be independent of an infection. So we might have an infection in our gut called Helicobacter pylori infection, uh, and that can actually increase our acid levels because our body will want to get on top of that infection. So it secretes more acid to manage it so it's part of a normal physiologic response but the common management of that infection is antibiotics um, or antimicrobial herbs uh, and uh, usually some kind of gastric acid suppressant um, that to me just kind of reeks of more problems down the track i don't really like it uh, it's not a really great that doesn't match my philosophy in terms of the approach to managing 
that style of infection. So I like to do things slightly differently than that. But mm. you will find that a rise in gastric acid, um, if it's unrelated to an infection, uh, it could be, in fact, due to an elevated sympathetic state or perpetual continuous elevation of the sympathetic state. So people you find that are very anxious, are very agitated, are very frustrated, they're very hot people, like their heads are hot, tend to have an increase in acid level, particularly um, uh, between meals uh, and and often immediately after a meal where they're just not coping with the ability to digest, so they're over-secreting um, and not doing it efficiently. So they might not be chewing their food properly either. And so they, there's just... A, a raft of symptoms that take place as a result of all of those things. And the simple thing would be to say, well, they get bloated and that might then cause burping um, at the top end. Um, in the middle part of the gut, Steph, you could probably also contribute to, you know, what I'm talking about here, but in the middle part of the gut, uh, people might experience bloating in that part too, where there's undigested or inappropriately digested food that's now tried to be digested in a part of the gut that's not meant to be being digested in. So, you know, where the pancreas might be more appropriately uh, functioning in a less stressed environment, it's not functioning as well as what it should be when it is stressed. So pancreatic enzymes, when it enters the duodenum, you know, via the common bile duct, may be coming out in shorter amounts or lesser amounts as a result of being sympathetically dominant. So when you're in a sympathetic state, you're not sending out appropriate digestive enzymes you need to be in a parasympathetic state when you're digesting. Uh, and so you'll be, you could be bloating immediately after meals and passing wind within 45 minutes of eating. Those sorts of classic symptoms show up as an insufficiency of the pancreatic function. Um, and then lower down in the gut, if your sympathetic you know, uh, nervous system is overstimulated, then, then your transit time is very rapid. So instead of being a 12 to 24-hour transit time, the corn that you ate for your meal the night before could be coming out eight, eight hours later, you know, or six hours later, our, our bowels may in fact be unformed or quite loose. And so that, that kind of measure of speed of transit is quite important to understand whether or not your nervous system is overcharged. Yeah, there's so many things. And it's interesting going back to what you were saying before about like a symptom such as reflux, you know, it's a whole nother conversation, but wouldn't it be incredible if, that was treated with some stress management techniques as first line rather than handing out prescriptions because stress, you know, like one of the biggest causes to GERD, which is that gastroesophageal reflux disease, is stress, which long-term can create things like ulcers and this whole host of issues that, you know, we need to address by coming back to that holistic view of the nervous system, I think. Yeah, that's definitely forgotten about in a more Western sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The whole holistic approach has been, you know, kind of, uh, well, it's been, it's been unpopularised uh, because of the speed at which antibiotics work. And so if you see something as the enemy and you've got something to defeat the enemy um, and the enemy being the thing that, co- that is perceived to cause the problem, uh, rightly or wrongly. So let's say, for example, we blame helicobacter as the cause of ulcers versus stress that's the cause of the helicobacter yeah. that gets in the gut in the first place that causes the ulcers. Exactly. Well, you know, we're skipping a step. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, especially because I'm like you, I have a real issue with the overprescription of especially the proton pump inhibitors because of all the oh. 
ridiculous side effects that, that we're now finding out. And unfortunately, many people are suffering chronically because they've completely shut down their inbuilt acid production. And that's a tricky problem to fix when we're talking sort of 10 or 20 years later with, you know, 40 milligrams of SOMAC being prescribed daily and, you know, no other intervention, no other offer from a, you know, preventative measure. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly no other stimulation for um, you know for gastric acid secretion or yeah. or even mucous membrane uh, protection. You know, so it's it's just one tablet can't fix it. It's uh, it's a big concern for me. It's kind of like the whole depression thing. You know, like people present with depression, Steph, and um, and they get given a tablet. You know, take this tablet that'll cure your depression. But the cause of the depression, whether it be an environmental cause from um, food or like an internal environment cause or an external environment cause hasn't been addressed and you can't just fix depression by taking a tablet um you know you're kind of just band-aiding the symptoms so mm-hmm. and that's i suppose what western medicine has been very very good at is band-aiding symptoms and and you know it's not, not the consumer's fault that that's what they've got it's that it feels good to be symptom free so people yeah. prefer to be symptom free and maybe don't then consider the long-term or downstream consequences of just being symptom free as opposed to managing their health and well-being just globally. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm not hole. sure I want to open that can of worms. <laughs> it's like a hole. Yeah, it is. Yeah. What about then just um what we see in clinic as the flip side when sluggish bowels or constipation um are a symptom? What, what's the role of the nervous system there and, and what can we do to make a difference? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? So in a really tired, overwhelmed, um, exhausted state, you would see that, oh, like, we would see that the parasympathetic nervous system uh, could in fact be, uh, you know, engaged in a larger capacity. Uh, and so there's a greater propensity to rest, digest and repair. But with the nature of what we're expected to do these days, and that is, you know, check social media every 20 minutes, um, answer all of the emails, take phone calls, um, make beds, get up, <laughs> eat food, um, do your gratitude journal, meditate, <laughs> yoga, uh, all these, you know, you expect to do all these sorts of things. It's difficult to be in a parasympathetic state and then manage all of that. So um, ideally you'd be in a sympathetic state, but in a burned out state where your body's screaming at you to get some sleep, you might actually find that your bowels actually slow down a little bit. Um, and that's, you know, largely, largely in part to assist in you calming down, eating some food, sleeping, resting and repairing. But we have an expectation that our body can just keep on going because we think it's a machine. Right? We think it's a whole bunch of parts that as long as we do all of the bits to make each of the parts work, then we should function the way that we expect it to. But it's an organic unit that uh, from time to time needs a little bit of a rest. So we will notice that our parasympathetic nervous system is screaming at us if our gastrointestinal system is sluggish and there's fatigue. So you've got to put that cavity in there. If your guts are sluggish but there's not fatigue, it's highly likely not to be the parasympathetic nervous system that's actually causing this. It's possible that your constipation is due to something else. Maybe it's a fibre issue. Maybe it's just the speed that yours moves maybe it's the type of food that you're eating maybe you're eating the wrong meals maybe you're lactose intolerant you know there could be a whole host of different things that might be actually contributing to you not moving your bowels it may not be the nervous system that's actually 
causing the problem, but it's worth investigating whether or not it is because if it is bundled with fatigue and chronic, you know, sleep deprivation but at the same time needing to sleep all of the time and then, you know, having broken sleeps when you do go to sleep, if it's all of that, then you would think that it's nervous system related. Yeah, so I think, I mean, we still can definitely see, even though it makes sense that the sympathetic nervous system would cause that transit time to increase, I don't think it's out of the question that stress causes some people to be more constipated, but yeah, yeah it's usually a bigger issue. Like if we go back to um, the testing that we both do with our clients, like one of the functional insights is gut motility. So I often find that this is one of the areas that do needs a, a lot more support, you know, so motility yeah. is obviously the rate at which the food moves through the digestive tract and that impacts bowel frequency. Um, as simple as it sounds, a lot of people have too many protein degrading species, right? Because Western cultures, or I don't know if it's just Australia, but we tend to eat a lot of yeah. protein. We eat a lot of meat and most Heaps. people, pardon? Heaps of it. Heaps, heaps of protein. Of it. Yeah, heaps of protein. And most people, at least when they're starting out a real food journey, are really only eating sort of vegetables or fiber for dinner. Their their breakfast and lunch choices are relatively low in vegetables and, and plants and might be a little bit of fruit. But, you know, that's going to have a huge issue because we know that fiber is like if we're looking for a magic pill, if there was one, it would be fiber. Um, Agreed. Yep. At this point in time, when it comes to, you know, allowing the body to produce the short-chain fatty acids, which are really anti-inflammatory and very protective to the gut, but also really promoting the growth of the fibre-degrading species in the gut, which we need to move the waste out the other end. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I love it when we talk about poo. I love it when we talk yeah. dirty stuff, you and I. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, fibre is so important mm. and uh, and it's definitely what I see is probably being the biggest cause of a sluggish bowel, but even one of the, the bigger causes of a rapid transit time is a lack of appropriate fibre. So yeah. um, I'm aware of, you know, some children who have had to go onto a, onto a diet uh, to help their psychological symptoms out. And as a result of the adaption to that sort of eating program with a massive reduction in uh, grain-based starches and fibres and even potato starches, um, or tuber starches, like in, in the absence of that, uh, there's been an increase in diarrhea in the settling phase of all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, the, it's amazing if you do take out starch-rich foods or fibre-rich foods that you can actually significantly affect the microbiome very, very quickly within two or three days. And we saw that with our great friend Kale when he went over to Namibia. And within seven days, his microbiome had shifted significantly. Oh, yeah. Hugely, just with a change in diet. Yeah, which, which is a bit of a tangent, but um, I think it's really important to acknowledge what we've eaten culturally. Like, because obviously yeah. Kale was eating a very healthy Western diet, but he's gone to Namibia and eaten a totally traditional diet, right? So, of course, yeah. that's going to be really different for him who yeah. has probably, I don't know his genetic line, but isn't Namibian. <laughs> like it's not, it's not, it's not going to look the same, right? So no. if we think about like, I mean, obviously I work in the low carb space and a lot of people will try and use an argument, like let's just say they use an argument like, um, 
oh, the endurance runners in Africa all eat high carbs and they're, they're performing really well, they're the fastest on the earth and so on and so forth. I'm like, well, firstly, we have to explore food quality because that's a whole other conversation we might get to. But secondly, their genetics are obviously really geared towards tolerating that kind of food. And yeah. I don't think we can talk about the same in like Western countries like Australia and America because we've got totally different genetic lines and we've eaten very different food historically. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. It's funny you say because I was just talking this morning on the radio about that, you know, exactly the same thing, you know, a consideration of our ancestry as to the sorts of foods that yes. we should be eating. And I think this is actually, you know, as, as simple as what it was back in the 90s, just with an observation from Peter Diadama around blood typing, as we've evolved in our understanding of the nutrigenomic profiling and where our genes have come from and how much percentage of Greek have you got in you, how much Xena warrior have you got in you, how much Yoshi have you got in you. You know, you can find out all these different parts of your genome to kind of understand where you came from. Our individualised eating program becomes even more tricky like to kind of understand what it is that we should be eating because we continue to evolve every day. And I know there was, Stefan, you, you know, you saw this too, that there was discussion at some point that our bodies haven't evolved at all for what, what do they used to say 50,000 years, but that couldn't be further from the truth because we're evolving every time we procreate and every time we alter our environment, we're evolving. So we're always evolving. We're always changing. So the consideration has to be given to what we've grown up with uh, what our parents grew up with, what our grandparents grew up with and along the whole line. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely relevant. We see so many examples of that around the globe. And, of course, some cultures thrive on a different ratio of macronutrients. Like I think that's obvious. I just I know it's, to me, there's no one size fits all. But I, I often think that in the literature, in a lot of the, st sub the studies that are coming through, what's not being discussed is food quality, right? And this is where I get really on my soapbox because what really bothers me is when we've, let's say we're looking at an example between low carb and high carb, like we're talking about the comparison of carbohydrates only, but there's no... I guess there's no nothing factored in around food quality. So someone who's eating low carb and someone's eating a different mac macronutrient ratio but no one's talking about whether there's fruit and vegetables or whether there's grains in there or Kellogg's, Uncle Toby's, whatever. And I think we can't compare apples to oranges and it's the same thing with, you know, the research that come, comes out around certain fats and, and when meat's demonised every five seconds in the media, when we're talking about the difference between you know, feedlot, grain-fed, hormones, antibiotics, and, and pasture-raised lamb. Like, I mean, when we're looking at anything that's a comparison of food, like we have to be able to factor in quality. That's almost impossible to do in a study. I understand that. But then we can't extrapolate the data. We have to be really mindful of defining exactly what we're talking about, whether it's a macronutrient or whether we're looking at the specifics and the quality of the food from there. Very well said, Steph. Very well said. I 100% I, I agree with you. I think that um, very little, um, I think too much, too much importance is placed on the results of studies um, yeah. as opposed to the observation um, of, of what actually happens in the individual. And, and part of the, the biggest problem that I identify with studies is that the assumption is that every human is the same. 
So our experience is going to be the same. So our response to an intervention is going to be the same and so on and so forth. And everyone's response is moderately different um, or in some cases extremely different um, based on your genes, your genetics. And yes, I know that 95% of our genetic makeup is exactly or, you know, almost identical, but there's those little things that kind of just change a little bit that make us very, very unique. And, and so holding ourselves to account to science uh, I think it's a bit of a dangerous virtue. It's a dangerous path to go down. I, when I was driving past Monash University, you know, Monash University in Melbourne uh, is on the corner of Wellington Road and the Princess Highway. I was driving um, along Wellington Road or North Road, heading away from Brighton um, towards uh, Monash University. And on the corner was this amazing billboard and it said, science does not provide the answers. It helps us but ask better questions. Mm. and that for me was a, an amazing turning point in my life of the understanding of the role of science and I think that we need to be clear on the role of science because yeah. while science is helping us understand better it's not providing all the answers it just then should be telling us okay what next or you know uh, let's ask the next best question so all right let's identify that ancestral eating is important okay so what's next how then do we then work out what works for subsets of the population and then how do we then work out what works for you know this subset of that subset you know we should be diving deeper rather than actually trying to find absolutes with just one study especially the way the world is at the moment right i mean you mentioned instagram before like i think media unfortunately they grab onto something observational or you know early research that certainly will probably never be confirmed by a well-designed study, but because it makes a really good headline, they're suddenly publishing it in the Sydney Morning Herald or whatever it might be. And it's all over Instagram <laughs> and everyone's freaking out. And like that one the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Not mentioning any names, but so, yeah. I get it all the time. I get studies sent to me all the time and I can tell not you, you, but when it's, when they're clients, like, it's almost like sent to me in fear, like, oh, my God, Steph, what? But you've told me to eat coconut oil or you've said that LCHF is okay. And I feel, I almost feel like upset for the people who are at the mercy of this because, yeah, like we have to be really mindful to understand the science. And certainly if it's observational, it's important. That's where we get the ball rolling. Don't get me wrong. But if it's a really tiny observational study, we can't apply that to our own health. And we, ha we do have to, before we freak out, we do have to really wait until there's a great randomized control trial that is proving the point. And as I said, it's almost impossible to do because if they're using anything like the food frequency questionnaires, there's so much human error in that. And then, yeah, there's, there's that food quality conversation, which is nearly always forgotten. So one of yeah. the other emails I got last week was someone freaking out about a study around um, low-carb decreasing bone density and really b being bad for our long-term osteoporosis risk. It was totally... That was keto, though, wasn't it? That's, keto. That was just keto. Yeah. That was keto. Yeah. And the macronutrients were super fat-orientated. Like, it was something like 75% fat, really yeah. low-carbohydrate. But even, even so, regardless, no one was talking about the kind of food that these people were eating. So... Yeah can't then assume that lowering your intake of refined carbohydrates but eating a predominantly plant-based diet that's also significantly rich in omega-3s when we look at the um the fat proportion like that's not the same conversation that's like talking about different. two different things 
<laughs> I know it's so different. Yeah. It's it's um yeah uh, media reporting. I tell you what, the media just beats. Like stuff I want up. to change it's, my acronym to lower refined carbohydrate, healthier fat. Yeah, people yeah. Are so confused, and then pointing the yeah. finger that I, that you know that I'm recommending keto and butters and yeah. saturated and steaks, which is totally not what we're doing. Like it's a predominantly plant based diet, and all the science and all the people in the entire world will support that a predominantly plant-based diet is the answer for health and longevity. And that's what we're trying to do, but it's getting muddled with media and, and, and the, the sort of American keto, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's, it's interesting that you see you call it American keto because um, the Australian keto and the British keto and the American keto is all pretty much the same, but mm. you know, we're talking bacon and fried eggs and, Heaps of fat, cheese, heaps you know. of dairy too. Like dairy, yeah, yeah, I know. And, and isn't that interesting that eating heaps of cheese and cream and dairy might also contribute to a lower level of bone density? Well, they they chose not to talk about that though. It was really selective yeah. around. It was <laughs> Louise Burke, bless her. She's been brilliant, but she's got this chip on her shoulder about low carb. So her studies are always going to be biased as well. Like, unfortunately, all of us have our own selective bias. Um, yeah, it's true. Not give up on trying to disprove LCHF. <laughs> <laughs> She'll keep going. She'll keep going. But um, you know, everyone's got a banner about a flag to fly. But I think yeah. you know what comes out of this this little dis- this conversation is how important it is to be mindful of your nervous system and <laughs> <laughs> and your digestion mm-hmm. um, and how intrinsically linked they are, and that consideration should be given to the health of your nervous system and your ability to respond to the environment and circumstances and situations, as well as how does your body respond to food when you're stressed or how does your body respond to food um, after you've eaten? Do you fall asleep or do you have energy? You know, I think, you know, just consideration of what actually happens to your body when you do eat um, and what actually happens to your body when you actually stress. You know, some people's appetite switches off. Mm-hmm. So there's all these sorts of things that can actually take place. And, you know, so using your nutritionist to assist you in that and having a chiropractor at hand I think is really important. And, uh, you know, the combination is a really great combination to ensure that you're going to be really, really well. Yeah, beautiful. I agree. I think it's really just acknowledging that intricate relationship and looking at ways that you can look after your nervous system in a world that is so dominated by all of the things that we've got to get done. It's really about finding the balance. Like, you know, I think it's not about um, the, it's not the presence of stress. It's the absence of relaxation. You know, we want that balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So yeah, I think yeah. that's really important that we all factor that into our health goals and certainly for longevity as well. I agree. And just, you know, just before we close, Steph, because I know I can tell in the tone of your voice <laughs> we're about to close, but I was just thinking that there's other things that you can do to switch your body into parasympathetics. Mm. And so, yes, you can go and see your chiropractor and, yes, you can eat really well. There's other things you can do like moving for 30 minutes a day is really good, you know, so go for a walk for 30 minutes a day. Make sure sure you're not wearing sunglasses all day every day because you're blocking the ability of the sun's refracted uh, light rays to stimulate melatonin in your brain so you know that's an important thing to consider as well don't wear blue blocking glasses all day Mm. particularly when you're outside maybe when you're in front of a computer do it but when you're outside let nature take its its part in in your health and well-being um get some acupuncture have a massage you know have a long cuddle you know, have a little with somebody for longer than 
0.3 of a second. You know, really like embrace somebody or sit down and, have, and tell some jokes and have a laugh, watch a funny movie. All these sorts of things are the ways in which we can unwind our sympathetic nervous system to move us towards parasympathetic when we need to be parasympathetic. Yeah, absolutely. There is absolutely so much we can do. And yeah, I think write that list. So from what Damo suggested, you know, jot down a few points around what what you're not doing and what you can easily add in without it being another stressor, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Just another gratitude journal, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oops, <you> know. <laughs> Maybe just be mindful of it. <laughs> um, oh, awesome dear. to chat. It was so good. And there are a couple of those studies that we're going to examine um, in future episodes as well. So I look forward to unpacking those with you next time. Yeah, it's going to be good. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.